Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Go inside the inventive minds, evolving places, and creative trends of the Africa you need to know now. Entrepreneurs use solar energy to power up transport, businesses, and young minds in Ghana. Technology is that catalyst we need to move education from where it is now. Inside Africa, only on CNN, in association with Zenith Bank. Let's take a journey to a more eco-friendly side of Tokyo. The path I'm walking on now is a recognized path for forest therapy. Find balance between nature, comfort, and traditions. I want customers to see and touch what they eat because the food comes from nature. Enjoy a more sustainable travel experience. We want to reduce waste as much as possible. Despite being in Tokyo, it's still all about the old way of life. The Journey Matters, Sunday on CNN. This is CNN. More people get their news from CNN than any other news source. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon. In today for Julia Chatterley, great to have you with us. Just ahead on today's show, dramatic rescues still taking place in earthquake-ravaged Turkey and Syria. The death toll there now surpassing 41,000. We are live with the latest. Plus, a surprise development in UK politics, Scottish leader Nicola Sturgeon announcing her resignation. Sturgeon is the longest serving Scottish first minister. She says it's simply time to move on. We have a live report. But first, important economic numbers just out in the U.S., and they've come in surprisingly strong. Retail sales up by a much better than expected 3 percent in January. That's after two straight monthly drops. Sales excluding autos also beating expectations. Americans apparently still ready to shop despite stubbornly high inflation. And as we found out Tuesday, consumer prices still not coming down as fast as the Fed would like. Food and energy prices, in fact, heading in the opposite direction. U.S. stocks on track for a lower open as investors try to debate how the Fed will respond to all of this new data. You can see the Dow, Nasdaq and S&P futures all off by about three tenths to half a percent, let's call it. Economists fearing that the U.S. central bank will have to hike rates much higher than expected in the months ahead. Investors, of course, had been hoping for a Fed rate hike pause. Let's get more on today's economic numbers. Paula Monica joins me now. So, Paul, when you look at this report, look, it's the biggest retail jump in almost two years. What stands out to you? Where are people still spending strongly? Yeah, this was an amazingly strong report, Raul. You have to look at the fact that consumers clearly are willing to go back out into the real world, if you will, and spend on things like dining out. You saw the surge in the sales, retail sales numbers for food and drinking establishments. So people clearly willing to spend money, despite the fact that inflation remains persistently high. And it was a very strong report across the board, across so many different categories like clothing, autos. It was very solid, but it's going to probably give the Fed more reason to raise rates, as you mentioned, for a lot longer because 
they want to get inflation down and cool off the economy just a little bit. We're still in the environment where good news is bad news. And I think this report falls squarely in that camp. Paul, I want to switch gears a bit. Elon Musk making some news saying that he hopes to find a successor for Twitter by the end of this year, finally putting a timeline on it. But some analysts already slamming that timeline, essentially wondering, Paul, why so much longer? Yeah, I think it is troubling to a lot of people who want to see Musk focus more on Tesla and maybe SpaceX to be waiting this long to potentially find someone to take over at Twitter. He tweeted uh, you know, a joke this morning that is a uh, Shiba Inu dog Floki is the new CEO. We know that even though that would be the cutest CEO in corporate America, it's not for <laughs> real. Here's what he did actually have to say at an event in Dubai this morning. I think I need to um, stabilize the organization um, and just make sure it's in a uh, financially healthy place um, and that the, the, the product roadmap is clearly laid out. Um, so I don't know, I, I'm guessing probably towards the end of this year um, should, would be good timing to um, find uh, someone else to run the company because uh, I think it should be in a stable position around uh, you know, at the end of this year. Now there's a couple of things to, to note there, Rahel. One, Musk is notorious for not meeting deadlines. He'd be a terrible journalist, even though he's a great entrepreneur. And also, he has talked in the past, on Twitter most notably, about no one in their right mind would want this job because it's so difficult. So is Musk really going to find a CEO by the end of this year? Or is he just gonna throw in the towel and say, you know what, I'll just keep running this like everything else that I've got on my plate. And critically important, will he be able to stabilize the company by the end of this year? Paul LaMonica, so many questions. Yeah, that's a big yeah. That's a big question, too. Thank you. And speaking of retail sales, we're actually going to speak to CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, a bit more about retail sales coming up in about 30 minutes. Paul LaMonica, thank you. Now to a dramatic announcement in Scotland, where First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has just said that she's stepping down. Sturgeon has been facing increasing tension over Scottish independence, as well as Westminster's decision to block a Scottish law to let people change their gender without a medical diagnosis. She says she stands by the work that she's done. I am proud to stand here as the first female and longest serving incumbent of this office. And I'm very proud of what has been achieved in the years I've been in Butte House. However, since my very first moments in the job, I have believed that part of serving well would be to know almost instinctively when the time is right to make way for someone else. And when that time came, to have the courage to do so, even if to many across the country and in my party, it might feel too soon. And Bianca Nobolo is with us now. Bianca, good to have you on the program. So what more is she saying about what led to this decision? Because it feels like it came pretty abruptly. That's what shocked people, Rahel. It was the abruptness of the decision. There'd been chatter that perhaps Nicola Sturgeon wouldn't be leading the party into the next election, which has to be January 2025 in Scotland at the latest. But the speed of this came entirely unexpected. Journalists were scrambling to be there for the announcement this morning. Now, the reasons that Sturgeon gave were a mixture of personal and political. She did say that she wanted to spend more time focusing on Nicola Sturgeon, the person, being able to see her friends and taking some of the burden off her family. 
family. She spoke about how the political climate had become more brutal in recent years and that people perhaps don't understand the toll that that can take. But her reasons were also political. And she said that she didn't want to be taking key decisions for the party if she wasn't 100% sure that she'd be leading it in months or years to come, that she wanted them to be able to have a fresh start. But of course, behind all of this, Rahel, is inextricably linked to Sturgeon and the SNP, the question of independence and whether or not Sturgeon's continued role at the helm of government and the party is really the best thing to try and achieve that. Bianca, I wonder, this is yet another example of a woman very high in politics stepping down. Mm. It makes you think of New Zealand's prime minister stepping down last month, citing burnout. Uh, Did Nicola say more about that? I know you just mentioned some of the stress of the job and maybe focusing more on her personal life. But did she say more about that? Because it's hard not to make the connection when they've happened so quickly next to each other. Yes, I think this is an important and interesting point. Obviously, Perhaps more details will be revealed, which might explain the sudden nature of Sturgeon's decision. But if we learn nothing new, then we could perhaps interpret it as part of a trend or perhaps normalization of the idea of leaders stepping down and acknowledging when they feel burnout rather than clinging on to the very last, having to be pushed out, like, for example, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson or politicians that deny that they've lost an election. It's interesting that they are both female leaders. As you mentioned, Ardern, who's in her 40s, Sturgeon is in her 50s, saying that she just didn't have enough gas left in the tank. And Nicola Sturgeon also talking about the fact that it does take a toll and I've been working in politics and covering politics for you know more than a decade and there has definitely been a worsening of conditions in some respects for members of parliament and politicians of course people are justifiably critical of their leaders but the fact that you can't escape this criticism whether it's trolling on social media or concerns about your personal security or the security of your family it's hard to ever get a break from it. And I think it is more all-consuming and all-encompassing. And perhaps these two leaders have acknowledged that and recognised that the political calculus means that they're just not in the best position to achieve what's most important to them in that role. Mm, A lot to consider and a lot to think about. Mm. Bianca Nobolo, good to have you on the programme today. Thank you. Well, in the last few minutes, the U.S. Defence Secretary said that he has... Not been aware, and he's not aware of any additional objects in U.S. airspace in the past couple of days. That's after the U.S. shot down three unidentified objects and a suspected Chinese spy balloon in recent days. Well, now China is vowing to retaliate against the U.S., saying that it will take countermeasures against U.S. entities for violating its sovereignty and security and slapping Chinese sanctions and Chinese entities with sanctions. Ivan Watson is here now on the story. Look, Ivan, this story just continues to develop lots of moving parts here. And now you have Japan saying that it strongly suspects China has flown these type of spy balloons over its airspace. Uh, Rahel, a growing number of governments saying that they think they've seen spy balloons uh, over their territory. Japan's defense ministry saying that between uh, November of 2019 and September of 2021, that they detected three balloon-shaped objects that they suspect uh, were unmanned uh, Chinese surveillance balloons. 
not clear why they haven't said anything about that until now. But Japan's defense minister uh, has basically said that uh, he does not rule out the possibility of, of shooting one of these out of the sky if it's detected again. The Chinese foreign ministry did not like this accusation. It uh, firmly rejected this and accused Japan of participating in a smear campaign against Beijing. And of course, the tensions continued between Washington and Beijing ever since that Chinese balloon was detected at the beginning of February, flying nearly across all of the U.S. and then being shot down by a U.S. fighter jet. Uh, And uh, last week, the U.S. uh, slapping sanctions on six Chinese companies linked to uh, China's military uh, aerospace industry. Uh, We heard this uh, threat from China that it might take some kind of actions unspecified against entities in the U.S. that are threatening China. This back and forth continues to go on where China has accused the U.S. of flying balloons over Chinese airspace, something that Washington denies, and that Washington says that it has seen uh, suspected Chinese spy balloons over dozens of countries across five continents. Uh, Not clear where this controversy will take us next, but we're learning an awful lot about countries and their balloon programs right now. Rahel. It's really interesting, Ivan, because it seems the tone from China has really changed since the beginning of this discovery. Initially, it started with uh, confusion about the balloon, and it has grown increasingly uh, more aggressive. Ivan, China's top diplomat now in Europe as part of an eight-day trip, which, as I understand it, will also include a trip to Russia. Bit of a balancing act here, Ivan. On the one hand, trying to boost relations with the West. On the other hand, trying to maintain its close ties with Moscow. That's right. And, and, and Wang Yi, the, the most senior Chinese diplomat, he's been in Paris. He's been meeting, we believe, uh, the French president, Emmanuel Macron. Uh, you know, China's reputation has taken a hit in Europe in recent years for a number of different reasons. It hasn't helped, of course, that it has refused to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And just weeks before that invasion, in February of last year, uh, the Chinese and Russian leaders stood side by side and declared that they had a friendship a partnership with no limits. Uh, So not only is Wang Yi visiting France, but he'll also visit Italy, Hungary, which has taken a much softer position on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And he is expected to address the Munich Security uh, Conference uh, this weekend. Uh, That's going to be attended by uh, NATO countries that are rushing weapons like tanks and anti-aircraft defenses to Ukraine. So it'll be interesting to hear what kind of a line he will take at that meeting. Uh, And then he's expected to go meet with senior Russian officials in Moscow uh, as well. That's coming up to the one year anniversary of this disastrous war. One final note, Rahel, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will also be at that Munich security conference. We're not sure whether or not it's possible these two uh, officials could meet. Blinken had to postpone his visit to Beijing because of the controversy over the Chinese balloon over the U.S. A critically important point, Ivan, that that discovery was, I think, days before that visit. And so uh, lots to watch here and a lot to watch from that trip. Ivan Watson, thank you. To Turkey and Syria now, where the death toll there has climbed to more than 41,000. That's after last week's earthquake. Even amid despair and debris, though, hope. Rescuers are still finding people alive in the rubble. This woman here was rescued 203 hours after buildings came crumbling down. Take a look here. This woman was saved 212 hours after the quake hit. She was hugged by family members who had been waiting at the scene of her rescue. 
These are just some of the stories of survival amid unimaginable loss. But now survivors are also coming to terms with a painful new reality. Nada Bashir joins me now from Istanbul with more. Nada, uh, what is the latest here? Because we know the need there still remains quite large. Yeah, absolutely. There is a huge need for those impacted by the earthquake. But that search and rescue mission is still continuing. You mentioned two cases there, and we are still seeing survivors being pulled out of the rubble. According to state media, a woman and her two children have now been rescued 228 hours after the earthquake. And so there is still some hope that more survivors could be rescued. But of course, the window for finding survivors is closing very, very quickly. And there is now more of an emphasis on providing support to those who have survived and to those who, of course, lost everything in that earthquake. There has been a huge groundswell of support across the country and internationally. And we've seen that here in Istanbul. We've seen people from the southeast being evacuated to the city, huge aid distribution centers being set up. And we were able to visit one family who had to flee their home seconds before it collapsed and are now resettled here in temporary accommodation in Istanbul. Take a look. More than a week on, and the scale of the destruction is still difficult to grasp. The landscape permanently changed, the death toll still rising. Those who made it out alive now grappling with a devastating new reality. For Samir and Amal, it is a reality that's painful to come to terms with. They fled their apartment with three-year-old Lena and seven-year-old Yusuf seconds before the building collapsed. Now, they found temporary shelter in the home of one generous Istanbul resident living overseas. But their trauma is difficult to overcome. And memories of the quake still haunt this family. Our friends and relatives are still under the rubble. The whole family is gone. Yusuf tells me, Mom, I don't have a room. I don't have a house. No toys, no friends. I want to go back to school. Lena is constantly crying. She's my only daughter. She's changed a lot. The chances of finding survivors beneath the rubble is getting slimmer by the hour. But in Turkey, hope persists. With more miraculous rescues over the past 24 hours. But as the days pass by, the focus is shifting to recovering the dead and helping the living. Well, as you can see here, these volunteers have formed a human chain to carry these boxes of donations into this truck. They're being loaded, ready to leave this distribution centre in Istanbul and head straight to southeast Turkey. Now, according to coordinators at this centre, there are some 20,000 volunteers working around the clock across two centres here in Istanbul. They've been working for the last week, sorting through thousands of boxes of donations, all ready to be sent to people impacted by the earthquake. But coordinators here say they need more support and fear they will be forgotten by the international community. Were you scared when it happened? Yes. Scary? Very. Very scared? Yes. And while acts of generosity may go some way to help, for those who've lost everything, the rebuilding is just beginning. 
And look, Rahel, there is a huge challenge ahead for the Turkish government to provide support to the thousands of people now left vulnerable following uh, that earthquake. And also, of course, there are huge infrastructural challenges as well. Authorities now saying there are some 50,000 buildings that are unsafe and need to be demolished immediately. This cannot even imagine what the road ahead will look like and how long it will take. Not a Bashir. Thank you. For the first time in a week, the Turkish stock market opened for trade today. It had been closed due to the quake disaster. The main Turkish stock index rising almost 10 percent, 9.8 percent there. Investors say that government efforts to help prop up prices were responsible for the move higher. And I'll have more first move after the break. Welcome back to First Move, where we're looking at some of the latest global earnings. Japanese beverage giant Suntory, home to brands like Orangina, Maker's Mark, and Jim Beam, reported record full-year revenue and profit. And that's despite global economic challenges, including the pandemic, rising oil prices, and a spike in supply chain-related costs. Revenue jumping more than 16 percent to nearly 3 trillion yen. And its alcoholic beverages segment, Beam Suntory, achieved record sales. Like many companies around the world, Suntory is also supporting relief efforts after the deadly earthquake in Turkey. Joining me now is Takashi Ninami. He is the CEO of Suntory Holdings. Welcome for be- welcome to the, the program. Welcome. Thank you uh, for having me this morning. Yeah. So congratulations on the quarter. Walk me through some of these numbers in terms of the food and beverage segment. What trends are you seeing there that led to those strong numbers? Uh, definitely. We performed pretty well in the United States and uh, Asia, including uh, Japan and emerging uh, Asia. And India did a great job because uh, a lot of people started to drink uh, um, high-end beverages Hmm. and Europe as well. So all over the world, except uh, the uh, the huge challenges we faced, like... uh, um, uh, supply chain challenges, but uh, we overcame pretty well. So I, I just feel so proud of my my people. Thank you. Congratulations. And let's stick with spirits because Thank I you. saw that spirits grew more than twenty percent year over year, according to the report. Does that tell you anything about the health of the consumer? Or I wonder, do spirits do well in times of economic growth, but also times of economic downturns as well? Does it tell you anything about the health of the consumer? I think uh, the consumer confidence has been a bit waning. Uh, that's a concerning. The depletion level has been slipping off a little bit. And we see some discount campaigns in the standard alcohol beverage businesses. But uh, a silver lining is the trading down has not been seen significantly. Hmm. So I don't see that will happen. So still, the market is, uh, uh, I mean, uh, resilient and uh, I think uh, consumers still love our premium spirits. <laughs> Certainly benefiting brands like yours. Uh, Tak, let me ask, in terms of the Japanese, your Japanese employees, many, uh, as you know, haven't seen a wage increase in decades. Help me understand how Centauri is trying to change that in terms of wage increases and what the plan is there. Uh, first of all, Centauri and asked to raise wages uh, by at least 6%, which means it could be 7%, to support our employees. The reason behind is uh, the inflation is around 4%, which is causing to get uh, the other people suffering from 
uh, disinflation. So people are suffering from uh, disinflation. And I think uh, our announcement, as well as other you know, peer companies, uh, are creating kind of ripple effect to the other major corporations. But the key thing is whether SMEs can follow this trend or not. That's a huge issue because 70% of Japanese labor force comes out of SMEs. So SMEs must increase uh, uh, wage high, I mean wages, so that the Japan, Japanese economy will be better off. I know you mentioned that inflation is, is hovering around 4%. I wonder, do you think 6% is high enough to be competitive? Because there are other uh, large Japanese companies, I think fast retailing is one of them, that are increasing wages much more significantly. I think the number there was up to 40%. Is 6% enough? I think it's on average. And uh, the uh, depends on the structure of the uh, uh, pay scale. And the 6% is uh, very much competitive. But I think it depends on how people performed and the six percent on average. I think some people can enjoy the uh, around twenty percent, some people ten percent, some people five percent. Mm. So at least I think uh, three to four percent to cover the the, the 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 amount they suffer from uh, the uh, uh, inflation. That's a guarantee. We mm-hmm. call that a base of the salary. And, and Tak, I want to ask before I let you go, I know Suntory is also trying to help with relief efforts in Turkey. Uh, help me understand what your company is doing to try to help the people there. Uh, first of all, we don't have uh, big businesses uh, uh, there. And uh, first of all, I'd like to express my deepest condolences to those who lost their loved families and friends. And uh, we have announced uh, to donate uh, around 280 thousand uh, dollars to those who are in need. $280,000. Well, every dollar counts. Taknimi uh, Nami, excuse me, the CEO of Suntory. Thanks for being on the program today. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. Major flight delays and cancellations as German airline Lufthansa suffers a massive IT outage. The company says that all departures and arrivals in Frankfurt have been suspended until at least early evening. Lufthansa says that the problem was caused by damage to fiber optic cables during construction work in Frankfurt. Meanwhile, Delta Airlines saying that strong demand is helping offset higher costs. The company announced a 5% raise for its workers last week. CEO Ed Bastian told our Richard Quest why his staff deserves it. Our people are the ones that got us through this challenging time. It was a, uh, an incredible year of tr- creating stability in the U.S. air travel system. And now we're moving more globally as we, we end the year and going into 23. Uh, cost pressures are considerable. There's cost pressures across every class of, of costs you could imagine, uh, particularly commodity costs with fuel prices still meaningfully above anything that we were dealing with pre-pandemic. And as a result of that, we need to continue to be more efficient. We need to continue to ensure those costs of production make their way into pricing, and they do. Uh, At the present time, the demand has also been strong. So to some extent, they're connected. Uh, The inflationary pressures are partly due to the amount of money that's out there in the the system that, that consumers are sitting with, which enables us to continue to advance our revenues in terms of having pricing keep up with those inflationary costs.
you clearly do have pricing ability. You have the ability to recoup some of the uh, higher costs of uh, operations through the fares. Well, we need to. We need to. We uh, can't justify growing our business if we're not able to cover the cost of that growth and of that business. We are seeing, as you know, an amazing rebound in demand on the consumer front. Uh, the demand we we're seeing here in the US is unlike anything I've, I've ever seen in my 25 years in this business. And fares are continue to be quite healthy because of that, combined with the fact that it's also difficult well, relative to capacity, the OEM challenges of getting new planes, the training requirements to get pilot staff properly. So as a result of that, we're in a kind of a great equilibrium between supply and demand, which enables us to pass through those cost pressures in terms of pricing. You were blunt in your criticism of both bureaucracy and air traffic uh, navigation and air traffic control from the bureaucratic side over the uh, the, the ATC failures um, and at the same time the infrastructure snafus that just prevent the US aviation industry from growing the, uh, as perhaps it would like to. The, the system is fragile. Uh, by the way, it's not just in the US, it's in Europe, it's in other parts of the world as well. Anytime you take a system as complex and as as large as the air traffic system globally and essentially shut it down for the better part of a year and a half and then start to bring it back up again it's hard it's hard on your people it's hard on your customers it's hard on the authorities the regulators so i think there is a there's an element of of we we all need to be understanding that said we need to get the investments that for the long term to improve the infrastructure. We're doing it with respect to our business model. We need our government partners to be doing it with respect to infrastructure that, that we ride on the backs of. If we look at your expansion, you've got, you've got the domestic network really up and running quite nicely now. And your main trunk routes and your main internationals are, are solid. So what do you grow? What, what, which part of the world do you like the look of? Well, the growth that we were implementing this year is to Europe. Uh, the transatlantic, interestingly, despite some of the economic challenges in Europe, uh, we're seeing the greatest demand that, again, we've ever seen, even stronger demand to Europe than within the United States itself. Uh, we'll be operating this summer probably a 20% greater amount of capacity or supply across the transatlantic than we did pre-pandemic. Pre, uh, so you can see the significance of that. Uh, the next thing clearly is China. Uh, we're all watching to see what's going to happen there. Uh, we, we know when China really does open up, there's going to be an enormous amount of demand, both into and out of China. And uh, we're going to do our very best to be prepared for that. How have you done it, Ed? I mean, how have you managed to have these investment JVs or smaller investments, whether it's in Mexico, Mexican Islands, or Virgin, which is a long one, and you've managed to make them work? And I'm not being unduly flattering to you, but you have managed to make them work, whereas anybody who studied this industry knows that the history of one airline buying a minority stake or an investment in the other usually means you lose your shirt. Well, the investments that we made are not to invest in airlines for the sake of airlines. If that was the case, we'd, we'd buy more of our own 
uh, airline and grow, and grow Delta. We know international travel is the future. We know long-term the U.S. marketplace is going to get fairly constrained uh, over the next decade. There's not new places to fly within the U.S. or new markets. We're building bigger airplanes and maybe bigger airports, but the air traffic, the congestion in the sky is going to restrict how much additional growth we can have. But the world at large, that's our that's our oyster. That, that's our opportunity. And by investing in our partners, we have a seat at the table inside the boardroom, inside the management team of these companies to ensure that we're doing the right thing for our joint customers. And Delta, not the only travel-related firm seeing continued strong consumer demand. Airbnb reporting its first ever annual profit. It says that bookings for vacation rentals remain strong. It's also upping its first quarter revenue forecast. The consumer truly front and center on Wall Street today. The U.S. reporting a surprisingly strong read on consumer spending, up 3% in January. Let's take a look at the market reaction. U.S. stocks are lower across the board. Dow, Nasdaq, S&P all off by about half a percent. The Nasdaq's off one quarter of a percent. A resilient consumer willing to pay higher prices will only make the Fed's inflation fight harder in the months ahead. That's what you're looking at in the market reaction. Deutsche Bank predicting that the U.S. central bank will hike borrowing costs not only in March and May, but also in June and July as well. The hope had been for a Fed rate hike pause by the summer. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, good to have you on the program. So help me understand what we think is behind these strong numbers. Is it the strong labor market? Is it cooling inflation? What do you think? It's a whole bunch of things. It's also warmer weather in the Northeast. It's also Mm. increases in the minimum wage and also increases in Social Security benefits tied to inflation. So Social Security checks were a little bit higher. There was deep discounting after the holidays. So there were sales that lured people to buy things they might have uh, put off at the end of the year. So you see this roaring back of consumer spending, even accounting for inflation. This isn't just higher prices for, for what you're paying for things. It's higher prices and buying more of it. And this is the strongest growth we've seen um, from month to month since March 2021. So that feels to me a little like reopening kind of euphoria, food, uh, bars and restaurants for cars. So there's some pent up demand for cars. So that's part of this number is uh, car sales. So that could be temporary. I mean, you don't buy a new car and then buy another new car, right? So that could taper off a little bit here, but certainly a strong number overall. And 6.4% year on year, I mean, again, outstripping really kind of inflation. So it's a lot of different things at play here. And, you know, I've been looking, my sources, you know, have been emailing, you know, this is a stake in the heart of recession fears. Another one says, uh, a surge in sales eases the first quarter recession fears. I mean, this is not recessionary kind of behavior. And of course, that means the Fed will have to step in and maybe be more aggressive because these um, this this consumer is defying gravity. No matter what they say in the polls that they feel terrible about the economy, they're still spending money. They may feel terrible, but they're still spending, to your point. And, you know, it sort of pushes off the conversation of a recession right now. But you have some like Deutsche Bank saying it means a harder landing at some point because of what the Fed will have to do. Christine, unfortunately, we'll have to leave it here. Thank you. Nice to see you. Christine Romans there. And from Wall Street to the rest of the world, the World Trade Organization says that trade volumes will increase by just 1% this year. It's a significant drop on last year's 3.5%. As part of our series, Connecting Africa, Eleni Giacos spoke to the head of the World Trade Organization to ask about what this means when it comes to Africa's prospects. Dr. Nkozi Okonjo-Iweala, amazing to see you again. Trade is synonymous with globalization, but 
globalization for the last few years has been vilified. Could you break down for us just how important trade is in poverty alleviation, specifically in the African context? There's a lot of talk of uh, vilification of globalization. And yes, trade is part of it. It's not all of it. But trade, we cannot live without trade. Trade is what moves goods from one part of the world to another. Trade is what helps us to be resilient. So on the African continent or on the European continent or the U.S., you cannot have everything you need to survive. That means that you need to get it from some other part of the world. And that's why we need trade. And in spite of all the talk about uh, the demise of globalization, there's still robust trade among countries, among all our 164 member countries going on. Let's say that globalization has helped to lift more than 1 billion people out of poverty. We shouldn't forget that. But there's also no doubt that not everyone benefited. There were poor people in rich countries that were left behind when manufacturing or other jobs were taken. And there are poorer countries and many on our continent who have not yet benefited. But does that mean that they, we cannot benefit in future? The answer is no. I think we need a new type of globalization. I call it re-globalization that is going to benefit our countries by pulling in all those who were left behind. The year ahead for the continent, what are you expecting? We have forecast that trade, global trade, is going to be uh, uh, to fall to 1% this year, 2023, from 3.5%. Uh, the growth in global trade is going to fall dramatically. So that feeds into the forecast from the IMF, the World Bank, the African Development Bank, all the multilaterals showing that we are heading for very low growth, perhaps recession in some parts of the world uh, in the coming year. And once we have that, of course, it impacts on the continent. What I would say is, look, there are also countries on the continent who are not doing badly. And what we need to do is look at, look at these opportunities to, to support the, the bright lights on the continent and, and try to make those things work for us. And finally on First Move, musician Pharrell Williams certainly has something to be happy about. Pharrell is joining luxury brand Louis Vuitton as the new creative director for menswear. His resume boasts not only music, but collaborations with brands like Adidas and Chanel. Seems like a fitting match. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Marketplace Asia is coming up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 